Uh, let me pray, and then we'll jump into this passage. God, thank you so much for uh, what's here. And Lord, thank you that as we've gone through this book of Acts, uh, we just continue to see um, you doing amazing things. And uh, Lord, we long to see um, in our own lives um, us being uh, flourishing in Christ and the church to spread and to grow. And so pray as we look at it today that your spirit would lead us to both of those things as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's by the time we get to the very end of today's passage that the followers of Jesus, they're actually, they're given a nickname that this one sticks. And so up to now, if you look at uh, the book of Acts, they've been called uh, disciples, they've been called followers of the way, they've been called saints, they've been called witnesses, uh, they've been called all sorts of things. Uh, But we have at the end of this passage, the first time that they're called Christians. So if you look at the very end, chapter 11, verse 26, it says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And actually what happens in this passage is uh, the very beginning of what you and I know as the West. And what I mean by that is a Western way of thinking and believing, uh, a set of ethics, of morals and values, uh, the very life philosophy that Westerners have lived by for millennia. In fact, the truth is there wouldn't be a West as you and I know it uh, without the events that happened in these two chapters. Uh, you would not think or believe or feel or act or value the things that you think, believe, feel, act, or value without what transpires in these two chapters. In other words, if there weren't Christians, we would not value equality or justice or compassion. We wouldn't even value science or freedom or progress. Those are all Christian ideas. And we don't have time to get into all of those subjects, but let me just give you one example. Let me just give you the example of equality. That actually, believe it or not, the idea of equality in the West comes from Christians. It comes from Christianity. Uh, Let me show you. Glenn Scrivener in his book, The Air We Breathe, he tells the story of something that happened in Rome around the year AD 37, we'll say. So uh, 37 years after the birth of Christ, and uh, the emperor is Caligula. And he was actually facing a shortage of meat not to feed people in Rome, but to feed the wild beasts who they used in the Colosseum. Uh, And so keep in mind, we're talking about entertainment here, okay? Uh, This is not a necessity. But without meat, the animals, the lions and the tigers and the bears, oh my, would starve. And so what is his solution? It was to order all of the city's prisoners, whether they'd even received a trial at this point or not, it was to order them to be fed to the starving animals. In other words, in ancient Rome, the seat at the time uh, of Western civilization, people, human beings, could be used as meat to feed the emperor's animals. And of course, that way of thinking, like today, that's atrocious, right? Like, no one in our society would allow the L.A. County jail to be emptied of its prisoners to feed the animals in the zoo up the street. We would say that's barbaric. We'd say that's wrong. But where did Caligula get this idea? that an animal's life is worth more than a human's life. Well, let's go even further back, okay? So let's go back in time to the very cradle of Western thought, to ancient Greece, to Plato and his student Aristotle. So Plato said this, we'll put this on the screen. Plato said, nature herself intimates that it is just, as in like it's right and fair and good. It is just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. And then he says, justice consists, get this, in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. This is Plato. 
Uh, and then his famous student, Aristotle, picked up on that idea, and he said this. He said, for, for that some should rule and others be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. As in, it's, it's better for society, it's more expedient if some rule over others. From the hour of their birth, he says, some are marked out for subjection, others for rule. That's Aristotle. In other words, what they're both saying is, there is no such thing as equality. These are the guys who came up with Western thought. And they're saying there's no such thing as equality. So you and I, we consider justice to mean that everyone is equal, no matter their race, their income, their gender, their education, so on and so forth. But the ancient Western thinkers considered justice to be the exact opposite. They actually believed in inequality. They thought it was right and good, and so they enforced inequality. They said that was doing justice. And so 400 years later, Caligula and the Romans believed that some classes of people are so low that they can and should be used as food for lions and tigers and bears. And by the way, did you know this, this happened around the year 37 AD, 37, 38, 39, 40 AD. And so this is actually contemporaneous with the passage that we're looking at. And so the question then is, well, what changed? Where does this idea of equality in the West, where does it come from? How did we get there? Well, let me show you, because we actually see this idea of equality emerging into Western society right here in these two chapters where the term Christian is first introduced. And what we'll see in these two chapters is that the gospel is good news for everyone in every situation and without accommodation. In other words, without having to change it or compromise it. And so we'll look at this in three parts. The gospel is good news, part one, for every person part two, in every situation, and then part three, without accommodation, without changing it. And so part one, the gospel is good news for every person. Now, years ago, when Emmy and I lived in the UK, I was invited to have a meeting with somebody, kind of an important person, uh, down in London. And so he said, why don't you come down from Liverpool to London, and we'll have breakfast the next morning. And so I thought, well, okay, if I'm going to do that, then I'll have to leave the night before and I mean, I didn't have a lot of resources at the time, and so I didn't have a lot of money to spend. And London is a very expensive place to stay overnight, if you don't know. And so I was like, I'm going to stay in a hostel. And so I find a hostel that is above a bar called Belushi's. So I walk into Belushi's, and I'm like, where's the hostel? And I go to the bartender, and she's like, oh, well, it's just upstairs. And so I'm like, where do I check in? She's like, here. Also, would you like a drink? I'm like, no, it's okay. I'll just check in. Thanks. And so I go upstairs, and you know the room's okay, but there's like 15 bunk beds in there, and there's people's stuff everywhere. And, uh, and my friend said to me, uh, why don't you meet me up for breakfast, and the place I want you to meet me is called the Carlton Club. Now, the Carlton Club is an exclusive club that boasts as its members both current and former prime ministers, famous authors, tons of famous politicians, the upper crest, the upper echelon of society. And so here I stay in a hostel at night, the next morning, it's, it's an early morning breakfast, so it's still dark. When I'm, I'm putting on a suit in the dark in the middle of a hostel where there's like just things strewn all over the place, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing? And then I show up at the Carlton Club, and I let them know who I'm there to see, and they say, oh, sure, right away, Mr. Lovell, come on in. Let's, let me just show you where you can sit and wait. They're not quite here yet, but they told me you're coming, and so why don't you just sit here? And the Carlton Club is everything you would dream of. I mean, there's amazing artwork everywhere. There's perfectly done woodwork. The furniture is incredible. And the very essence of the Carlton Club is that unless you're a member or you're invited by a member, you're excluded. Now, here's the thing that I thought was most funny about it. My, the bill comes for breakfast at the end, 
And uh, I think the breakfast cost something like three times what it cost for me to stay in the hostel the night before. And so thankfully my friend was like, don't worry, Ken, I got this covered. But by definition, this place is exclusive. Like you can't just, you and I can't just walk up to the Carlton Club and say, we'd like to have some breakfast, please. It's exclusive. And if you were assessing the spread of Christianity and the church in the book of Acts up to this point in chapter 10, despite its diversity of men and women from every social class and from every uh, very diverse set of nations and even race, up to this point, Christianity had been exclusively for the Jews. And so even if somebody was a different race, but they had become a Christian, they had become a Jew first. They had already converted. And so up to this point, only Jews and Samaritans who were sort of half Jewish, they're the only ones who had received the gospel, the only ones who anybody had preached the gospel to. And so in short, up to Acts chapter 10, the gospel was exclusive. But now there's a monumental shift by the end of chapter 11, because at the end of chapter 11, it says that the Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. They're being baptized. And who, by the way, who are the Gentiles? Gentiles are non-Jews. Almost all of us in this room, I know there's a few that aren't, but almost all of this room are, are Gentiles. And so if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. And what this shows us is no persons are excluded from the Christian gospel or from becoming a Christian. Now look at how this happened, because God gives two visions. He gives one to Cornelius and the other to the Apostle Peter. Uh, in verses 1 to 8, we meet this man, Cornelius, and so who is he? Who's Cornelius? Well, we know three things about him. We know uh, that, that actually would, would mean he should be excluded from the gospel. And so the first thing we, we know about him is that he's a Gentile. That's strike one. But then secondly, he's a Roman centurion. You know, a centurion means he's in charge of 100 Roman soldiers, right? Centurion, century, 100. So he's in charge of 100 Roman soldiers who are the occupying force in Israel, keeping the, the nation from being free. So that's strike two. And then thirdly, it says he lives in Caesarea, which is a city that the Jews hated because it was the center of the Roman occupying forces. And not only that, but they'd actually built a temple there to worship not God, not the God of the Bible, not the God of Israel, but Caesar Augustus. And so there's strike three. And yet it says in verse two that Cornelius was a God-fearer and generous to the poor. And in verse three, it says that he was praying. And so what we find out is, yeah, okay, so it seems like Cornelius was seeking after God, but actually God gives him a vision, which tells us actually that God was already pursuing him. And so as he's praying, God sends him a vision in verse 5. He, God says, now send, or the angel says, now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. So there's vision number one, Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. He hears from God, who says, go and get Peter to come and preach to you. And then the camera pans uh, a few miles to the south to the apostle Peter, who's in Joppa. And uh, he's also praying, and I, I love the humanity of this passage, by the way. Because Luke pauses to tell us that in verse 10 that Peter was hungry and waiting for his lunch. And so while he's waiting, he's praying. And I have to say, I read that passage, I felt very convicted because when I'm hungry, praying is the last thing on my mind. Unless it's to pray, dear God, please let this food come sooner. And so clearly Peter is more godly than I am. But while he's praying, he has a vision. And the vision he has actually is of food, so maybe that checks out. But he has this strange vision of a sheet coming down from heaven. And then verse 12, it says, on this sheet, uh, verse 12, it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds, which to you and I at lunchtime, other than maybe the reptiles part, that sounds delicious, you know, I'll take that. And the picture that Luke is painting here is not just of a select few animals, but of the entire animal kingdom. That's the picture that's being painted here. But remember, Peter is Jewish. And according to Leviticus 11, 
all kinds of four-footed animals, especially things like pigs, uh, all kinds of reptiles like lizards, all kinds of birds. Th these things are off limits to the Jew. They're unclean. And so they're forbidden from eating them. And so this would not have been an appetizing vision for Peter. He would not have looked at it and been like, ooh, delicious. Uh, and yet look what God says to him in the vision, verse 13. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And so this is unappetizing. For those of you that know this about me, this would be the equivalent of taking me down the condiment aisle at Vaughn's and being placed in front of the wall of mayonnaise and somebody saying, grab a jar, take a spoon and eat. That is, that is how he's feeling about this. Okay, and so Peter responds and says, verse 14, surely not, Lord. Which is exactly what I would say to God if he put me in front of mayonnaise. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Again, the parallels are just everywhere. And it says down in verse 16, it says in verse 16 that God had to show him and give him and tell him this three times. And then it says in verse 17 that when Peter woke up from this vision, he still didn't get it. He didn't understand. And so what does it mean? What is this vision actually getting at? Well, look again at verse 20. Um, because these uh, three guys from Cornelius' house are coming, and, uh, and they're, they're coming to take Peter with him. And uh, in verse 20, God says to him, do not hesitate. And the word there for hesitate uh, can be translated as to criticize or to take issue with someone, or to, to make a distinction or division between people. In fact, if you look at chapter 11, verse 2, do you see where it says that the Jews criticized Peter? Do you see that in there? They criticized him. That word, criticized, is the same word as hesitate in verse 20. So you see the connection here. And so here's what this vision and the immediate arrival of the Gentiles to Peter's house is getting at. The Spirit is saying to Peter, no longer make a distinction between Jew and Gentile. No longer a criticism of Jews, of Gentiles. No longer make it. You could actually translate verse 20 as, so get up and go downstairs. Do not make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, for I have sent them. In other words, not only was the vision about clean and unclean animals challenging Peter's view of what he can and can't eat, but this vision and then what happened after is challenging his view of clean and unclean people. Because to the Jew, the Gentile is unclean. And God was saying, stop making that distinction. Because look at verse 28. Peter had arrived at Cornelius' house, and Peter gives his interpretation of the vision. Uh, verse 28 of chapter 10. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate or visit with a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Now, what is all of this getting at? It's this. The gospel is good news for everyone. And we see this in the fact that Peter goes with these three men to Caesarea, to the Jews' most hated city. And not only does he associate with a Gentile, he enters into the home of a Gentile. And I don't want to understate the monumental step that is being taken here. Peter has likely never before stepped foot in a Gentile home. And then, and I love this, it says in verse 33, this is a phrase, by the way, every single preacher wants to hear. Look at this, 1033. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Now I think we should add this verse to our liturgy. 
uh, right before the sermon, we make everyone stand up and in unison say, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us, right? We should add that to the liturgy. Whoever's in charge of that, let's do that. And for the first time, the gospel is shared inside a Gentile home. And we'll get back to this at the end, but it says the whole household believed that they received the Holy Spirit much like the Jews on the day of Pentecost, and they were baptized, thus erasing the distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the church. No person excluded from hearing and receiving the gospel. It's good news for everyone, no matter their race, ethnicity, social status, their past, their present, their future. And so this story in Acts shows us that the gospel is good news for absolutely everyone. And then that actually leads us to part two, uh, that it's also good news in every situation. And to see this, let's skip all the way to the end of chapter 11. In the first half of chapter 11, Peter defends this sharing of the gospel with the Gentiles back uh, he's back in Jerusalem, and remember, they're criticizing him. Uh, and then in verse 18, after he tells them what happened, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem say, uh, chapter 11, verse 18, so then, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And then the camera pans again to the Jewish believers who are scattered out of Jerusalem when persecution first broke out. You remember that in Acts, I think it was chapter 8. And it mentions that some of the Christians were scattered as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Um, without getting into too much detail, these places are all to the north of Israel and actually out of the country. Uh, Cyprus is actually even just an island off the coast. That's how far away they tried to get. Uh, it's off the coast of what is now Lebanon. And it says in verse 20 of chapter 11 that some men from Cyprus, and then it mentions Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. It's in what's now Libya. Uh, they, some guys from there went to Antioch to share the gospel, it says, with the Greeks. So it said right before that, some people went to share with the Jews, and then some people want to share it with the Greeks. Now the word there, Greeks, it's the Hellenists. Uh, these are polytheists. They don't believe in the God of the Bible at all. They worship actually the pantheon of Greek and Roman gods. And so they would certainly struggle to believe that God came as a man and was crucified. In fact, they'd be offended by the idea that God was crucified. And yet, verse 21, you can see how God is pursuing. It says, the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, I look at that and I think, well, why go to Antioch? Why go there to reach the Gentiles? Why go to that city? Well, Antioch was actually this historically great city. It was known as the third city of the empire after Rome and Alexandria. Uh, it was extraordinarily beautiful. In fact, it was called Antioch the Beautiful. Uh, I guess that was its marketing campaign. It's not unlike this marketing campaign. Can we put that up? Uh, this marketing campaign I came across in Hollywood during the pandemic for the state of Ohio. Uh, I don't know if you can read that or not, but it says, Ohio, number two for quality of life. <laughs> now, I, I read that and I think, you know, if I was going to move, why wouldn't I go to number one? Like, that just makes me want to look at number one and go there. Um, it wasn't California and it wasn't Texas. I'm just letting you know. Um, <laughs> it should have been California. Anyway. Antioch would rank number one for beauty in the ancient world, not number two. It had an estimated half million inhabitants. Uh, and these city dwellers, people who lived in that city, they were from all over the world. They were from Persia, from India, from China, from Rome, from Israel, from Greece. They're from everywhere. But in addition to being very cosmopolitan, it was also famous for uh, this sort of luxurious immorality. 
It was famous for a deliberate pursuit of pleasure that went on night and day, so much so that the main temple in the city was dedicated to the goddess Daphne, uh, who was Apollo's mistress. And the way that you worship Daphne was to visit the temple prostitutes and reenact the love between Apollo and Daphne. And so this is Antioch. It's wealthy. It's cosmopolitan. It's beautiful. And it's immoral. And so because of that, you'd look at that and think, well, this seems hopeless. It's the least likely place that you would think, I'll go there to reach Gentiles. They're rich. They're pleasure-seeking. They have everything they could dream of. That's not too dissimilar from Los Angeles. When Emma and I were called to come to Los Angeles and replant what is now Christ Church Los Angeles, lots of our Christian friends from other parts of the U.S., they said things to us like, why would you go there? Everyone's leaving there. Why would you go there? All the Christians are leaving. Or they'd say, isn't that Sin City? To which we'd respond and say, no, that's Las Vegas. (laughs) Or they'd say sarcastically something like, good luck. You know, it's just going to fall off into the ocean soon, so make sure you get out of there. And even to this day, when I meet other pastors and other Christian leaders from around the country, they usually say something derogatory about L.A., and they look at me like I'm a crazy person for choosing to live and minister here. But my answer to them is always the same. The gospel is good news for every person in every single situation. And look at what happened in Antioch. Look at what Antioch... What happened there can happen in L.A. And so we don't need less Christians moving to Los Angeles. We need more. Because look at what can happen when people trust that not only is the gospel good news for everyone, but that it's good news in every situation. Turn over to chapter 13. You might have to just turn one page over, but look at chapter 13. Because at the very start of chapter 13, Antioch comes up again. And in fact, by chapter 13, the gospel has spread so profoundly in Antioch that had become a main hub of the Christian church. Uh, look at this, Acts 13, verse 1. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so it's listing out, these are the leaders of the church in Antioch. They're the prophets, the teachers. But look really closely at the list, because first there's Barnabas. And what we know about Barnabas is that he was a Jew from Cyprus, so he's probably a biracial Jew. Next is Simeon, called Niger. And Niger means black, so he's a black African. Then Lucius of Cyrene, which, remember, is in North Africa. Remember we said that's in what is now Libya. So he's most likely Arab. And then Menaean, who it says was brought up with Herod, which means he's both Roman uh, and he's part of the wealthy elite. He's in the upper crust. He was childhood companions, childhood friends with Herod. And then finally Saul, who is Jewish from Damascus, which is in Syria. And what we know about Saul, we know lots about him, but one of the things we know about him is that he's basically an academic. And these are the leaders of the church in Antioch, people from every situation you can think of, multiracial, multiclass, multieducated leaders who are very likely representative of this multiracial, multiclass, multieducated city. And I love that we get this detail in here, because if you think about it, here's what it's telling us. No city is unreachable. No situation is completely hopeless. Every race, every class, every level of education, every city is reachable with the gospel. Now let me just apply this 
for us briefly, because if there are people who you look down on, people who you might never say it out loud, but in your heart when you see them, they're inferior. Maybe it's a different race, maybe it's a different social class, a different level of education, a different political affiliation, a different age. You know, maybe they're Gen Z or maybe they're Boomer. If in your heart you see any of them as inferior, then that means you haven't fully grasped the radical inclusiveness of the Christian gospel. Actually, what it means is you're stuck in Plato and Aristotle, who they believe some people were inferior to others. but not Jesus Christ, not the Holy Spirit. Because what you see happening all through the book of Acts is Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit leading people to reach people from every nation on earth. And so Christianity, the gospel, is what demolished the idea of inferiority of other races, of other social classes, of other genders. It demolished the inferiority of the old or the young. Christianity right here in this story is where the intrinsic value and equality of all people on earth entered into Western thought. This is the moment. So much so that if you believe, you believe equality today, if you're the kind of person who fights for equality, then you actually are believing in and living out an intrinsically Christian ideal and value. Because where does that idea come from? Chapter 10, verse 34. These are the Apostle Peter's words. He said, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and who does what is right. No favoritism. Accepts from every nation. Now, this is a radical idea in the ancient world. Remember, this is contemporaneous to Caligula emptying out the prison and feeding these lower class people to the lions and tigers and bears. And then lastly, in part three, what is this gospel that, that unites the diverse people, erases class and racial divides? What is this gospel? This gospel is good news for every person in every situation, and now part three, without accommodation. In other words, without changing it. And to see this gospel, go back to chapter 10, where Peter presents the gospel to Cornelius and his household. Luke presents this as a, like a sort of prototypical gospel message. And what is that message? Well, first of all, it's important to notice First, that the gospel message is a message. In other words, the gospel is words. Look at verse 36. You know the message God sent to his people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So the gospel is a message. It is something that is announced. It is words that are spoken. St. Francis of Assisi, the 13th century Italian bishop, he was famous for saying these words, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And boy, is the sentiment of that completely wrong and unbiblical. The gospel is words. To preach or to share the gospel, it is always necessary to use words. And so then what is the content? What are those words? What's the content of that message? Well, look at what Peter says. First, in verse 37, Jesus Christ lived a real life on earth that God himself inhabited history And not only did he live, but second, verse 38, Jesus lived a perfect life where he served and he loved others. And then thirdly, it says that Jesus Christ died. And they killed him by hanging him on a tree. And to be hung on a tree in the ancient world is to say that he died a rebel's death. 
Remember, he's preaching this to a centurion. Centurions would be experts at hanging people on a tree. And they hung rebels. They hung people who were criminals. It was a shameful death. The worst of the worst died on a tree. But here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, serving and loving everyone he ever met, living a life that earned a blessing. But instead of the end of his life, instead of getting a blessing, he died on a tree. He died a shameful death. And so why did he do that? He took our shame. He died the death that we deserve to die. And how do we know that he did that for us? How do we know he didn't just die, but that he died for us? Look at the fourth thing that Peter says about Jesus in verse 40. He was raised from the dead. Peter says, we saw him. We ate with him. He cooked us food. We watched him eat it. We ate it. We drank with him. That's how we know his death isn't just a death, but a death for you and me. Verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And so everyone, 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 Jew, Gentile, Cypriot, Phoenician, Greek, Roman, Indian, Chinese, Mexican, Congolese, Italian, American, this is the same gospel for every people group without accommodation, without compromising, without changing. And you see this gospel message spreading all across the ancient world to people from all these different backgrounds. And it says that everyone who believes in him by faith alone, in Christ alone, receives grace alone, receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. And this is why they're called Christians for the first time in Antioch. Because previously your religion was associated with your nationality or your ethnic background. And so if you were Hebrew, you were a Jew. If you were Greek, then you were a Hellenist. You know, where you were from is what defined your religion. But now people from all these nations, all these ethnicities, all these races were receiving the gospel about Jesus Christ. And what tied them together was not common language, not common ethnicity, not common background. It was that they had all received the forgiveness of sins, the same forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. And so they're like, well, what do we call these people? They're not Greek, they're not Jew, they're not Roman. We need a name for it. We need a name that isn't geographic, that isn't tied to ethnicity or race. And so chapter 11, verse 26, back to where we started this morning, the disciples, this unbelievably diverse group of people, were called Christians first at Antioch. That was the moment that equality burst onto the scene in the Western world. And it did so through a message about the most highly exalted son of God humbling himself, becoming the lowest of the low, and dying a sacrificial death. And those who believed in him, they're now called by his name, Christian. Now, very briefly, let me apply this for us, because what, what is the practicality? How did this message get out? What, what did these early Christians do in order to make it possible for this gospel to be shared across racial and ethnic and socioeconomic lines? What is it that you and I can repeat? What can we do today to see that happen? Well, there's a theme in here of hospitality. I don't know if you noticed it, but when the three Gentile men show up at Peter's house, what did Peter do in verse 23? He invited them in. In fact, they probably stayed the night. He invited them in as guests. And then when Peter got to Cornelius' house, what did Cornelius do? He invited Peter in. And it actually says that Peter stayed many nights. Now, that is hospitality. And the biblical word for hospitality literally means love for the stranger, for the other, for the person who is not like you. 
And it's hospitality then that opened up the door for the gospel to be shared. Uh, a few years ago, uh, at our church back in, in England, um, we had a, a, sun, a summer Sunday, uh, not unlike what we did last weekend. We had a barbecue at someone's house later on in the afternoon. And that morning, somebody uh, was brought to church uh, by a friend, and uh, he was a Syrian refugee, so from Syria. Um, I'm not exactly sure where, but actually Antioch in the ancient world was in Syria. Now it's part of Turkey, but maybe he's from near there. I don't know. But he showed up at church uh, this Sunday morning, and, uh, and we said, hey, we have this barbecue this afternoon. Why don't you come? He goes, great, I'd love to come. And my friend Chris kind of put two and two together and realized that uh, he, he wouldn't be able to get there on his own. He didn't have a car, didn't have any way of getting around. So my friend Chris said, hey, I'll, why don't you just come hang out at my house for a couple hours? We'll have a few light snacks before the barbecue. So he hops in Chris's car and spends a couple hours over at Chris's house. And then from there, then they drive over to this other person's house that's hosting the barbecue. And while we're at the barbecue, I'd said to him, hey, uh, do you want to come to my house after this? Because uh, we're hosting a dinner, and the dinner is for people who are curious about Christianity and just want to ask their questions and gain some understanding of, of what Christians believe. He goes, I'd love to come to that. I said, great, we're going to leave in a few minutes. I'll drive you. So we're in our car. We're driving across the city uh, to our apartment. And it's kind of quiet because it's awkward. We don't really know him very well. And he breaks the silence by just saying to Emmy and I, he goes, is this for real? And I was like, is what for real? He goes, this. I'm like, what is this? He goes, I've lived in, in England now for seven years, and I've never been in another person's home. I've never been in another person's home. He goes, I've never been in another person's home in this country. And I said, that can't be true. He goes, in fact, one day, um, he goes, early on, I was working at this pizza shop, and I asked a guy that worked there uh, if I could just come and see his home. I'd never seen the inside of a, a home here, and I, I just would like to see it. And the, the guy said to him, no, nah, that'd be weird. <laughs> my, I mean, my heart broke for that. And he goes, is this for real? And so he came into our house, and uh, that night and for four or five more weeks, we got to share the gospel with him in our home. Uh, and this was amazing. At the end of it, uh, as we neared the end of the course, he's like, I've really enjoyed this. He goes, I want to have all of you into my home. And so we added a week to our course, and we, we did the last week in his home, and he made uh, food from his culture for us as equals. Christianity introduced that idea, equality. Because God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, he humbled himself and called us his friends calls us his brothers and his sisters. And without this gospel, without this movement of God, we wouldn't even understand what equality is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this incredible gospel message that breaks down the dividing walls of hostility. We thank you that this gospel message is the same yesterday, today, forever. And we ask, Lord, that this gospel message would work its way so deeply into our hearts that we would live out this value of equality because Jesus Christ died for us, because Jesus Christ made us his brothers and his sisters. We ask it in Jesus' name.